turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. In your copy of God's Word, we'll be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. This morning as I studied and just reviewed our text and the sermon, I was just reminded that this is a historical account. This isn't a mere story. We turn to Matthew, we're not just reading story, or nice stories. We're reading a historical account about the life of Jesus Christ, what he taught and what he did. And I want us to keep that before us today as we think about just an absolutely amazing moment in the ministry, the life of Jesus Christ. We come today and you know Matthew 8 and 9, I, I told you several weeks back when we started this section of Matthew that in chapter 8 and 9 we have a, a grouping of miracles that Matthew shares with us that follows up the authoritative teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember, you should remember hopefully if you've been here with us a lot in Matthew seven twenty nine, that that's how the Sermon on the Mount concludes with the realization that he taught as one with authority. They were amazed at the authority that, he, the authority that he spoke with. Well, now Matthew enters into chapter 8 and chapter 9, giving us accounts of how Jesus displayed his authority. So it wasn't just a, an authority he spoke of, but he didn't back up. It is an authority that he spoke of and proclaimed and taught, and then he carried out and he displayed through the things he does in chapters 8 and 9, specifically for Matthew. So we would recall that he displayed his authority over sickness in Matthew 8, 1 through 17, his authority over nature in verses 23 to 27 of Matthew 8, and then his authority over the spiritual realm in the end of Matthew 8, leading into the beginning of chapter 9, where he declares and demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. Now we come to a passage today in chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, where we see Jesus' compassion toward a sufferer, a chronic sufferer at that. And then we see his power, his authority over death. You might want to jot down, if you're a note taker, that the parallel passages for this account are found in Mark 5, 22 to 43, and then again in Luke 8, 41 to 56. And both of these passages is quite characteristic of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, the characteristic is that Matthew, his account is much shorter than the other two. The other two have, have several verses longer, more, more details about what happens. But Matthew has a very specific, a very focused, kind of a, a laser focus for what he's sharing here and why he's sharing it. He's building the case of Jesus' unrivaled authority, his unrivaled authority. So, so there's, there's not a lot of excess details. There's not a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of things he says outside of what he's focusing on, and we want to look at that today. What he's proving, the case he's building, is that there is nothing in all of creation, there's nothing that is outside of Jesus' rule. He truly is omnipotent. 
He is the God who is able. He is the God who rules. He is authoritative over all things. So if you come today and you're kind of looking or you think that you serve or you think you know about this God who is ruling over a few things or who is good for a few things, but he can't rule over all things or he's powerful over this, but he can't deal with this, then you need to look elsewhere. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the testimony of who Jesus is. And it's important for us to hear that this morning. It's important for us to be reminded of that because we tend to put Jesus, we tend to put God in a box. We tend to have this low view of God, a view of God that would confine him to be able to do only what we can do, maybe in just a little bit larger scale, right? Or a a view that would confine him to be like we are and not anything more, uh, more great or anything more holy than what we are. We confine him to being a God like us oftentimes. It's a, it's a view that, that sees Jesus only helping those that we would help. That he would only reach out to the people that we like. It's a, a view that perhaps sees God as only uh, able to control the things that, that we can control. So we only pray for the things that are within reason. We only pray for the things that, that might be worked out if someone else helps us. It's a, a view that perhaps would, would say that he is only in control of things that are seen, that he doesn't reign supreme over all things, over the seen and the unseen. The problem with this is that the God of Scripture is one who is mighty, powerful, and authoritative. That's the God of Scripture. That's the God that the saints of old knew of and they proclaimed and they prayed to. So David, when he prays in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. He doesn't pray to some weak, mamby-pamby God. He doesn't pray to some God who can do what he can do and accomplish what he can accomplish. No, he prays and he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. He does not say he rules over some things. He rules over all things. He doesn't say some things are yours. No, all things are yours. The prophet Jeremiah, he looks and he declares, he said, it is he, talking about God, it is God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. He is a powerful God. Later in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, he said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So do you come to God and go, well, I'm not going to pray for that because that's too difficult. That's too great. No, Jeremiah would say nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. Not some things. Most things aren't too hard. He's able to do most things. No, all things. God is capable. God is able. God is mighty. Jehoshaphat, when he prays in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not, in, not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Our God is a mighty God. Psalm 147, verse 5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. If this is our God, if this is the God we serve, the God of Scripture, 
If it's the God that's testified of and prayed to and declared and taught, if that's the God who is taught and seen in the Old Testament, then when Christ comes declaring and professing and claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, then you would expect that same thing. Christ did not come declaring that he was a great teacher. He came as the Son of God. Why is this relevant? Is this just review? Brothers and sisters, this is relevant because the latest data from the state of theology, if you've seen that survey, some of you in here might have seen that, found this, 43% of U.S. evangelicals say that Christ was a good teacher, but he was not God. That, that is not people who are sitting on the couch this morning. That's people who would proclaim that they're evangelical Christians. 43% would say Jesus is not God. So is it important what Matthew's teaching in Matthew 8 and 9? Is it important for him to say, look, this is what Jesus taught authoritatively, and this is what he did authoritatively, and he showed authority and power and dominion over all of these areas, every realm that you can imagine. He showed power. He showed dominion. Yes, it's important, because Jesus is God, and we have to understand that, and Matthew's driving that home. He's driving home that the powerful and almighty God that we see in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. It is him. He is powerful. He is mighty. We don't gather to worship a philosophy today. We don't gather to feel good about some words. We gather because we worship a high and exalted, a mighty, a holy, omnipotent, sovereign, awesome, incredible, majestic God. That's why we're here is to worship. We're not here just to sit around with friends. We're here to worship and exalt God. We're here to worship the one who is able, the one who is powerful, who is abundant in power, the one who came in the flesh, who lived among men a sinless life, who died on the cross and rose from the grave, the one who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Matthew 9. Beginning in verse 18. The word of God says this, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout 
all that district. We, we come to this text and we understand, he says, while he was saying these things, so we'd understand that, that Jesus is assumably still in Matthew's house, still having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. He's just answered the question about fasting that Pastor Matt covered last week in the sermon. While he's still talking and saying these things, he gets word, a, a ruler comes to him. You'll notice again these little verbal cues, grammatical cues here in Matthew that we see time and time again. One of Matthew's favorite things to put in there is behold or see, look. Behold, you have it twice there. Uh, Behold, a ruler came to him. And then you have it in verse 20. Behold, a woman who had suffered came. So he's bringing out and saying, these are the two things that I want you to pay careful attention to. These are the two primary characters that he's introducing us to both with grammatical cues of what we need to pay attention to. First is the ruler. Mark and Luke both reveal that his name is Jairus. He is a ruler. He would be a synagogue leader. Your translation, if you are reading from something other than the ESV, could be, it could say synagogue leader, synagogue ruler. He would have been a key leader in the Jewish community. He would have had great influence. And he comes before Jesus. The second character that we want to look at today, the second person is a woman who had suffered bleeding for 12 years. This condition of suffering would have made her and anyone who touched her unclean. It would have made her somewhat of a a social outcast and her life would have been a very difficult life, one of much loneliness. We come and we think of these and we think of the situation they're both in and we quickly understand and realize that both of these individuals are in desperate need of help. There's no one around who can help them, no one that they know, no one that they can come to with their particular situation and and get assistance or help. Jairus may have been an important synagogue ruler. He may have had great influence, but no one held sway over death. And the lady, as she comes, she came with a condition that no man could heal. And in their desperation, what we see and we observe and should take note of right away is that in their desperation, they come to Christ. They look to him and they turn to him. And we have to ask up front and have in the back of our mind this question throughout today's passage is where do I turn? Where do you turn? In times of desperation, what do you turn to or who do you turn to? Do you turn to the ways of man or the solutions of man? Do you turn to perhaps substance abuse to just dull the pain, to dull what is going on around you, to ease your mind? Do you turn to shopping and go and just get your mind off of it, just go spend and spend and spend to forget the cares of the world? Do you turn to entertainment and just entertain yourself to death and just mindlessly watch something on TV so that you don't have to think about anything else? What do you turn to? What do you look to in times of desperation? Now, I understand that all those things, they're not inherently bad. There are medications that we should take. Entertainment is not bad. Shopping is not evil. I I mean, I might disagree on some levels there. Eating, I would be a fan of eating, but some people eat to deal with suffering and deal with trials. What do you turn to is the question. In a time of desperation, what are you depending upon? Are you looking to 
God who is able? Or are you looking to something else? Are you looking to something else to ease that pain, to push it aside, to get it out of your mind? Or is the cry of your heart, in Christ alone my hope is found? A cry of a desperate heart that we would look to Him or are we looking everywhere but Him? Is the question we need to have kind of in the back of our mind today. So let's look at these two individuals. The first one, we see there's the chronic suffering of a woman in need. The chronic suffering of a woman in need is it's the account of someone in just a brief statement that you read. And there are some of you, when you read and you hear this, you instantly just kind of nod your head. And it's not a nod of, yeah, all right, I like her. It's a nod of, I understand. I get it. I understand what it is like to suffer for years and years and years. Her suffering was chronic. There was no end in sight. She was tired. She was emotionally spent. Her bank account was eliminated. Matthew 5.26 in this account tells us, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark, Mark 5.26 gives us more details and he makes this statement. He says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but she grew worse. In Luke 8.43, we learn that although she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So this, this lady who has suffered for 12 years, she had depleted all of her resources. She had given all that she had to be healed, to be cured. And every time she gave, every time she went, it didn't get better, it got worse. And so when she hears reports, and we find out in Mark 5, 27, when she hears reports, she hears about this Jesus and she hears and she goes to find him. She understands that he is the one who has been sent. She, he is the one who can help her. And so she comes in desperation and she seeks him out. And it says there that, that she hoped to merely touch his garment. Just touching his garment would heal her. If I can just get close enough just to touch the, the, the tassel on, the, on his shawl. That's all. I just want to touch him. Perhaps a little magical or superstitious thought here that something that jesus wore had the power in it It it's a thought that in fact kind of still resides today in in some religions it would reside even in roman catholicism with the idea of relics that you can touch a relic and receive grace you go if you don't think this is true just go to some of the larger basilicas and see it Many of us in here have seen the one in Montreal, one of the largest basilicas in the world, and you walk to the back and people have worn out, worn out a casket. They've worn out a container containing the heart of Brother Andrew. Why? Because if I just touch it, if I just touch it. But Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, yeah good, you've, you've touched me. That's wonderful. I'm glad you, you touched my garment. And so now you're healed. Matthew gets right to the point. Mark and Luke give us more details. Remember, you may remember and recall Mark and Luke both talk about Jesus kind of turning and asking who has touched me, right? No, Matthew gets right to the point. He's not going to look at all the details. He gets right to the point. He cuts to the chase and he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. 
Now, Mark and Luke have that same account too. They make the same statement. So in all three of them, it is Jesus looking her, to her and saying, your faith has made you well. It wasn't the touching of Jesus' garment that made her well. It was not as though she received power from these tassels. It was faith in Jesus Christ that made her well. I love the way that Spurgeon worded it when he commented on this passage. He said, a piece of fringe and a finger suffice to form a contact between a believing sufferer and an almighty, almighty Savior. Along that line, faith sent its message and love returned the answer. It was his garment which she touched, but it was her faith which had touched it. Therefore, our Lord said, thy faith hath made thee whole. And thus he put the crown upon the head of her faith because her faith had already set the crown on his head. It was her faith that made her well. It wasn't some superstitious act. And that's what, what Matthew's making the point of it, that it is faith, the faith that comes and says, Christ, you are my only hope. It's not some magical act, something you touch, something you do, something you say, something you utter, something you have in your possession. It is Christ, faith in Christ. It's Christ that we have to long to. It's Christ that we cry out to. In the midst of suffering, I can't guarantee your healing before the Lord. I can't. I can't guarantee that, that you're going to suffer and you're going to come and you're going to pray to the Lord and he's going to just heal it. I can't guarantee that. I wish that I could. I, I would remind you several weeks back when we started in Matthew 8, at the very beginning, if you were not here this morning, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. But at the beginning of Matthew 8, I gave you, I think it was six or seven truths or principles or points of a biblical view of healing. And one of those points was that sometimes God heals us, sometimes he doesn't in this life. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And I can't explain why sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. I don't know. But we talked about how in the ministry of Christ, in the New Testament, we have instances time and again where Jesus heals some and then he leaves and there are still many sick there. He doesn't heal everyone in his ministry. We don't have this testimony of Scripture that Jesus always heals in every moment, every time. We have the testimony from Paul. Do you remember Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9? About the thorn in the flesh that he had. This infirmity, whatever it was that Paul had, was never taken away from him. He prayed time and time again, God, deliver me from this. And he didn't. He didn't. But in his weakness, Paul learned that God is strong. He learned to glorify and exalt and boast in the name of Christ and not in his own strength. Listen, I can't guarantee you healing. What I can tell you is this, is that faith is required. Faith is required. It is a central aspect. We talked again about this, the importance of faith a few weeks back. Without faith, there will not be deliverance. It's not, but with it, you will rightly look to God for healing. And if he brings it, praise the Lord. But if he doesn't, with faith, you will still depend on him and trust in him to get you through day by day and to suffer in a way that brings honor and glory to him. This lady we read of suffered for 12 years. 12 years. I think it's so easy for us to just read over that. 12 years. It's 2010. What's going on in your life since 2010? 
Some of you would say, I've been suffering that long. This woman has suffered that long. She knew what it was like. You know what it's like. I would encourage you and appeal to you, look to Christ. Look to Christ for healing, for strength in the meantime. The second individual we see here is the ruler who lost his daughter to death. He it's kind of sandwich, or he's maybe the, the bread on the sandwich, right? As the ruler begins with the ruler, the lady comes kind of in the midst as he's going to see Jairus' daughter. And then we come back again in verse 23 to 26 to see again. But what we hear first of Jairus is really an interesting thing. It says that, that in verse 18 that a ruler, Jairus, a synagogue leader, came in and he knelt before him. He knelt before our Lord. A synagogue ruler, a, a man of great influence, comes in kneels before Christ. It's a demonstration of respect. The situation that he shares is that my daughter has just died. She wasn't sick. She wasn't almost dead. She wasn't struggling. She wasn't suffering. She was dead. And we learn in verse 23 that her death was so certain that the professional mourners had already been called in. They were already there. The flute players and those who were wailing had already been caught in to mourn her death. But just as the woman demonstrated faith, look at the faith of Jairus. What does he say? My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This is a bold assertion of faith. A very bold assertion of faith. There's no point in, this, in, in Matthew so far that Christ has shown that he can raise someone from the grave. He, he's never done that. And so here you have Jairus coming. He's heard of the miracles. He's heard his teaching. He knows from the prophecies of the Old Testament surely who the Messiah would be. He knows the words about God, who God is. And if this one is the Son of God, then he comes in faith and he says, if you lay your hand on her, she will live. This is a bold assertion of faith. Jesus hasn't demonstrated this before. He hasn't declared that I'm the resurrection and the life. But he comes and he says, my daughter is dead, but, but if you come, she will live. So Jesus goes to Jairus' house. He, he follows him and he goes right to his house. And he goes in and, and, and he, he comes, the scene is dramatic. It's very dramatic. I don't, we, we came into, I remember early on in, in Peru and in one of the villages we entered. Um, I know Mary Lou was with me. I can't remember who else was with us, Mary Lou. But we entered this village and someone had just died the day before. And there was just this, this wailing and a lot of mourning going on. And the whole town was, was observing the, the death of this person. So the scene here would have been very dramatic. As people would, would come in, and you, you read there that, um, uh, let's see, verse 23, there were flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Even the poorest of the poor were required to hire at least one professional whaler. That's odd for us, right? It's like, what? But yeah, someone would be brought in to wail and to mourn. It's a great commotion that people would be gathered around. There's flute players mourning the death of this daughter. They knew that she had died. And so Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He, he sends them home. He's like, you guys, you need to get out of here. 
Go do something else. You're wasting your breath on your flute. You're wasting your voice wailing. Just get out of here, right? He sends them home. And what is the people's response? How do they respond? Are they if, respond in the affirmative? They respond, go, all right, yeah, Jesus is here. No, they laugh at him. They laugh at him. It says that they, when he does this, they, the crowd laughs at Jesus because he said, what, go away. The girl's not dead. And they, they, they just say, this is ridiculous. Death is final. Like, we see death. We don't know everything about everything, but we do know one thing about death, and we know that it is real, and we know what it looks like. When we see death, we got it. There's no heartbeat. There's no breath. Lifeless body. We understand it. You're crazy. They laugh at him. They ridicule him. They were familiar with death. They understood its finality, just like we do. It wasn't as though they didn't get it. But what we see here is that those mourners of death were put outside and the resurrection and the life walked inside. That's the exchange that we see is that he casts them away so he comes in and he takes the girl by the hand and she arose. He just simply touched her. She arose. A touch of the Savior brought life to her lifeless body. Later in Matthew 11, verse 5, when John questions Jesus and, and just sends his disciples to ask about his ministry, Jesus says, tell John that the dead are raised to life. This would be one of the signs, one of the evidences that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we need to see today that the author of life restored life, that we might have hope in life. The author of life restored life, that we might have hope in life. Listen, I've been to a lot of funerals, and I'm sure you have too. Over the last four to six weeks, I've been to two funerals. And in every funeral that I've been to, there's grief present. But many of the funerals that I go to, it's different. That with that grief, it's seasoned with hope. In particular, those, the last two funerals, Miss Mary Jane Lackey and Miss Maxine French, there was hope in the air. Why? Because those two precious sisters were faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They loved the Lord. He was their hope in life and death. And so we grieve for them, but we grieve with hope. Why? Because we know that Jesus, the author of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life, was victorious over death, and he is the surety, the certainty of eternal life. And so when we gather as believers, we gather and we do mourn the loss of a loved one, but we gather with hope. We don't grieve as those without hope, but we grieve with hope. Why? Because Christ is powerful over the death. He reigns victorious. He has authority over death. And Jesus' authority over death gives us hope. Gives us hope. I, I want to just give you real quick seven reasons that Jesus' power over death gives us hope. We read this account and we read about him raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and we later in Matthew 28, we read of Jesus raising from the grave. Here's seven reasons that should give us hope this morning. One, Jesus has compassion on us in our grief. He has compassion on us in our grief. If you, you can write Luke 7, 11 to 17 there and you can read it later. 
But this is a passage where Jesus raises the widow's dead son, the widow on the way as he travels to Nain. And he comes across and there's a widow whose son has died and she's grieving. You know what it says? It says that he looks and he has compassion on her. He sees her grief. He has compassion on her and he raises the young man from the dead. Jesus has compassion on us in our grief, so we have hope. The second reason is that we have hope because Jesus is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. We meditated on John 11, verse 24 and 25. It says, I am the, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says that. Now, if Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, but he's dead, that does not give me hope. If I see and hear that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life, and there is no, uh, no account of him raising the dead, then I go, I don't know. Are you really? But we have accounts, three accounts in the New Testament of Jesus raising people from the dead. We know that he is who he says he is. If he is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life, then we have hope in him. The third reason we have hope is because it tells us, it teaches us that death is not final. Death is not final. That's not the end of the story. You recall John 3.16, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. We turn back to John 11.25-26 and we read that passage again. And what does he say there? He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Eternal life in Christ. Death is not final. It is not final. The fourth reason we have hope is that it teaches us that our work is not in vain. That's an odd one. Our work is not in vain. The things that we do, the things that we work for as believers, it's not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says this. In all of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been talking about the resurrection, the certainty of the resurrection, that Christ rose from the grave. It's a beautiful chapter of Scripture talking about the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. Because Christ is risen, and he reigns, and he lives. So we have hope. The fifth, fifth thing, we have hope because we have a heavenly dwelling. We have hope because we have a heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1-10 through 10 speaks of this. We don't have time to cover all this. But if you just note to go home and read 2 Corinthians 4, and 2 Corinthians 4 is the passage that, that Paul shares about all of his sufferings, all the trials, all the persecutions that he endures, the beatings, and, and just all of those things he goes through. And he, he talks about how they're persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be manifest. He, he just shares about all of that. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, we do not lose heart. Those outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And he's talking about the difficulties of life, the sufferings, the trials of life, and he gets into chapter 5. And beginning chapter 5, this is what he says. 
For we know, for we know, what? we know what? They're not discouraged. They're not beaten down. They don't lose hope. Why? For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would no further be, or we would be further clothed, so that this mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have a heavenly dwelling. This body will one day lie in a casket. But the hope that we have in God, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is a guarantee is that we have a heavenly dwelling, that it is not the end. Death is not final. Number six, the reason we have hope is, I alluded to this earlier, that we will see our loved ones again. The great hope that we have is we mourn the loss of a loved one who is a believer. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 Verse 13, Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who have died, those who have passed, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on to speak of this. We have hope. We grieve with hope because we know that we will see our loved ones who are dead in Christ again. A believer who dies is given the certainty, the surety of eternal life, and it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Finally, finally, we have hope in Jesus as the resurrection life because we have hope for eternal life. We have hope for eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 says that God being rich in mercy. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have hope in God, in Christ, because he is the resurrection and the life. And he shows that in Matthew 8. He demonstrates his power over death in Matthew 8. I want to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. I want us to end here today. Fully aware, fully remembering what we just studied in Matthew chapter 9. If you go back to 1 Kings, that's early on in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 17. There's two accounts in the Old Testament of one who is dead being raised to life. One is by the prophet Elijah and one is by the prophet Elisha. And I want us to look at this account in Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 17. I want us to consider this in light of Matthew's testimony of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. The word of God says in 1 Kings 17, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. 
and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and he carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now in this in this passage, what does she call Elijah? He's what? A, a man of God. She says when she's angry, she's upset, she's grieving. Oh man of God, what have you done? And in the end, she says, I know that you are a man of God. See, Elijah was not God. Elijah was a prophet. He's a servant of the Lord. His Power was limited. So she calls him a man of God. And because he is not God himself, what does he do? When the, when the widow's son is dead, what does he do? He goes up and he cries out to the Lord. He looks to the Lord. He prays. He says, God, what have you done? Would you bring this life back into him? God, bring this life into him. Bring this life into him. He prays it three times. He's calling on the Lord. He's praying to God. Do we see that same thing in Matthew 9? There's an important difference. Jesus walks in and says, you guys go home. She's not dead. And he walks in and he touches her hand. And she lives. See, Jesus wasn't just a man of God. Jesus was God. He was God incarnate. He was the resurrection and the life. And when the resurrection and the life walks in and touches this dead girl, she rises. She raises from the grave. She lives again. Breath enters into her lungs. <gasps> And she breathes. Why? Because he is God incarnate. He is the resurrection and the life. Now, look at 1 Kings 17, verse 24. What is the woman's response? She says, now, now I know. <laughs> She's amazed. Elijah carried him up. 
and he brought him down. And she looks in amazement and she says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth, or, yeah, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What is Matthew doing in Matthew 8 and 9? He's showing the power and authority of Christ so that you and I might know that every word of his mouth is truth. It's exactly what Matthew's doing. So the questions that we would say in response to this is, would you hear this account of Matthew's proclaiming and showing and relaying the authority of Jesus over death, and would you know then that he is God? He is not a mere man of God. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Would you see what he does? Would you see his power to heal? Would you see his authority over the spiritual realm? Would you see and hear his authority to forgive? Would you see his power over death? And know that everything that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, every word that he uttered in all the Gospels, the very word of God that we have in Scripture, is truth. It is truth. Would you know that? Would you rebel against the narrative of our day that says that truth is whatever you determine it? Truth is up to you. Truth is relative. Truth is determined by culture or, morale or majority. Would you rebel against that and understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Because he is powerful. He reigns supreme. Would you confess that? Some of you, the question is, would you turn to Christ in faith? Would you turn to him in faith, trusting that he would save you? The amazing thing is that the resurrection and the life, the one who is the uncreated one, the king forevermore, the Lord who is our salvation, the amazing thing is this one who had authority over death, he came to die and die he did. That's an amazing thing to think about. We sang that earlier that, that oh, that, I can't remember the lyric right now, but, uh, but he would come and he would die for me. Would it be that he would die on the cross for my sins? The resurrection, the life, the uncreated one, the king forevermore comes and he lives and he came to die on a cross? Why? Why? He does so as a demonstration of God's great love for us. That's what, that's what Romans 5, 8 says. It says that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the resurrection life, died for us. He paid the price. He paid the price of sin. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is what? Is death. He paid the price. He took the wage of sin and he died on our behalf. Why? So that we might live. So that we might live. Romans 6.23 ends with saying, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He died that we might live, and he rose triumphantly. He rose victoriously from the grave. He is not in the grave any longer. He lives because he is the resurrection and the life. And he told us, remember, he told us in John, he said, I no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to bring it back up again. And that's what 
He did. He's the resurrection and the life. This one who healed this suffering lady, who rose Jairus' daughter from the grave, from the dead, the one who is the resurrection and the life is God. And the great promise, the great promise, the great assurance is that if you confess Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What greater hope is there? What greater hope is there? Eternal life through Christ our Lord. Let's pray.